This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbents, independents. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hi there, welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri country. And I'm Fran Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And here we are, it's the final sitting fortnight before the budget, which means it's crunch time for a number of big pieces of legislation the government's sweating on. These include lots of things, but the the top ones, probably the Housing Future Fund, the government's Emissions Safeguard Action Bill, and the legislation outlining the final wording of the voice referendum. None of these have been easy negotiations. Some of them are ongoing. We're going to go through the argy-bargy in Canberra and the likely outcomes with Claire Armstrong. She's the national political editor at News Corp Australia. She's joining us a little later. But first, PK, that last hurdle I mentioned there, agreement on the proposed wording of the referendum question of the Indigenous voice to Parliament, it's finally done. We're recording on a Thursday morning. The PM has just announced the wording after spending long hours in the room with the Indigenous Referendum Working Group. It's a huge story. It's a watershed moment. And the Prime Minister got very emotional as he delivered the final wording. Where did we land on this, PK? He was incredibly emotional and a lot of people seem to be really struck by that. But I'm not surprised that he was emotional. Not only has he been working on this since he was elected, but really he has a lifelong commitment to this issue. And uh, I think he believes in it very genuinely. And so the emotion uh, was the emotion of not only the hard work that no doubt they have invested in landing on this consensus position with Indigenous leadership. He's, you know, he's standing, he's standing just to give a bit of perspective here next to the former Indigenous Affairs Minister, under the Morrison government. That's how widespread the kind of working group has been. So Ken Wyatt, Marcia Langton, Megan Davis. There's some serious heavyweight Indigenous leadership uh, surrounding him as he makes the announcement. Look, where they've landed is exactly, I think, where the Indigenous leadership wanted them to land. And that's the key point, Fran. The key takeout I, I take from this is that the Prime Minister has listened to the advice of the working group that he established that asked for him to create a body that was not a sort of fourth chamber or that it, you know, had uh, power to veto. They haven't been calling for that, but they did want it to have some teeth, i.e. that it had some influence morally over the executive government. And so that's a key part. He's kept that in. And it is him that's kept that in, um, that he has honoured their request to ensure that it's not watered down, but that it can give advice to executive government. So let's go to what the question will be when you go to the ballot box. The question will be this. A proposed law to alter the Constitution to recognise the First Peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Do you approve this, this proposed alteration? That's the question before the Australian people. Nothing more, but nothing less. 
So that's pretty simple, isn't it? That's pretty straightforward. And it had to be. It's a binary yes, no. And then there is what gets put into the constitution is separate, of course, right? That's not the yes, no, that's the detail. And the detail is really key because what they've done in the detail, there is a change. It's not exactly Mm. as he outlined it last year at Gama. In that announcement, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice. Um, It will provide representations to the parliament and the thing I just mentioned, executive government of the Commonwealth on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Doesn't seek to define what those matters might be. And that, again, by constitutional conservatives has been raised as a flaw because any matter could be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, they argue. Well, he's kept that language. And then this, this is a shift and he, he will argue it really has tightened up um, uh, what it can do. The parliament shall, subject to this constitution, have power to make laws with respect to matters relating to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, including its composition, functions, powers and procedures. Now, those words are quite detailed. Composition, functions, powers and procedures. Basically, the parliament's in charge of the entire functionality of this voice, how much power it gives it, um, i.e. how often it consults and what it does, its functions, um, how it's composed, how it's elected. It really is a quite a detailed uh, insertion of the fact that ultimately it is the parliament and the parliament can change it. The parliament can do whatever it wants now with the voice, right? So that's contained. But the big question is, Fran, will this be enough to appease the concerns of constitutional conservatives? No, I doubt it will. I doubt well, it will. I mean, just to explain for people, it's the constitutional conservatives who say that just that previous wording that is still in there under this model, that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice may make representations to the parliament and the executive government. The fear of some of those constitutional conservatives is that this will end up with governments being challenged in the high court day in and day out. But do those words that they've added there, that the parliament subject to the constitution will have the powers to to make laws in respect to matters relating to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, including its composition, functions, powers and procedures, does that give the government the scope to mean that it's closing down the options of being taken to the High Court every time the executive government or the parliament doesn't take the, you know, the advice of the voice? Well, if it defines, for instance, in, in legislation as defined in the constitutional amendment that it doesn't have to um, uh, consult every time or how many times, all these kinds of details which will be worked out later. Now, the government particularly went and got some extra constitutional advice around this. Um, the Prime Minister's statement says they uh, received advice from Professor Antumi, Professor George Williams, former High Court Justice Kenneth Hayne, Professor Megan Davis, and I understand that they got a closer look taken at all this to see if this would answer the concerns of those who think this will end up with every government decision being taken to the High Court. Um, This is going to be a a battle that goes on. I mean, but what the Prime Minister was trying to do, I think, today, PK, as he's done all the time and will keep doing now right up until referendum day, and this is where he gets so emotional, is try and take this out of the the, the nitty-gritty sort of argument point by point and try and get it back to the broader issue of, you know, he said, he said in this press conference, I say to Australia, don't miss it. Don't miss this opportunity. And I was really, you know, you mentioned the lineup of people there. What struck me particularly about that lineup was it did include Professor Marcia Langton. It did include Patrick Dodson. These people have been standing on stages next to prime ministers in press conference for decades 
more than two decades. And the, here they are, they're still trying to argue for something that will make a difference in their lives. And I was particularly moved or, or, or taken really by the quote that uh, Patrick Dodson used from the Uluru Statement where he, he mentioned the statement includes the words, the tyranny of our dispossession. And his argument for voting yes to the voice is that he thinks it lays the foundation to liberating Indigenous Australians from the tyranny of the pain and the suffering and the shame that we've lived with. That's what he said. So I think we're going to hear a lot of that kind of talk in an effort to persuade Australians to back this. But where is it going to break down? The well, government's trying to answer some of those arguments before they rise again, but they are certainly going to rise, aren't they? They are. And what the Prime Minister has done here, and we'll bring in our guest in a moment who's been in that room with those, you know, in, to give us the emotion and the feeling, but actually in the blue room where he made this huge announcement. But what we know is that he talked about the heart and the head. And he mentioned the heart first. The heart is how they will win this campaign. And that is their plan. And on that heart issue, he, he's, he's taken a gamble that, yes, there's going to be opposition, and he was respectful to people who want to vote no, you would have noticed as well, not trying to sort of insult the motives, but the but he's made he's taken the gamble that he's got to back the Indigenous leadership and their wishes and try and go for this and not just keep waiting for Conservative support. This won't appease all the Conservatives at all. It just won't. But I think the government's made the calculation that uh, it's just not going to get them on side if it just keeps adding words that then actually end up angering their in, the Indigenous leadership as well, because that's the thing. It's a trade-off every time. The other major issue for the government, which it's sweating on, is the emission safeguards mechanism. It's trying to change the model that the coalition had in place and actually try and make it work to force our biggest emitters to cut their emissions by close to 5% every year. The government says this is the only way we have any hope of reaching the 43% by 2030 emissions reduction target. But there's an absolutely ding-dong fight going on with the, with the Greens and within the Greens movement over this. And it's all happening, PK, against the backdrop of the IPCC, which is the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It released quite a terrifying report this week, or depressing, however you like to see it. Um, it's their synthesis report, which means it's the summary of all the previous main reports and special assessments from all the scientists, the hundreds of scientists that contribute to this. So an enormous amount of data has been poured over and the facts are alarming. The report warned the window to limit global warming and avert the dangers of climate change is rapidly closing. Efforts so far will not only fail to meet that agreed ambition at Paris of staying below one and a half degrees warming, but on current trend will be there within the next decade and keep crashing on to two degrees warming and beyond that. And to quote the chief of the IPCC, Hei Song Lee, the pace and scale of what's been done so far uh, is insufficient. We are walking when we should be sprinting. It's not great. <laughs> it's not great. You're right. This is being described as the final warning and it matters a great deal. And while we're used to hearing report after report warning about climate change, that it will get worse and worse, the report shows that the extremely damaging impacts of climate change are already measurable. It says that almost half of the population experience water scarcity and that weather extremes are forcing people to leave their homes. This is really serious stuff and that weather extremes are, are having such a huge impact that we now have this narrow path to keep to 1.5 degree increase. Uh, I had Mark Howden, the vice chair of the IP CC Working Group on RM Breakfast. And this is what he had to say about how likely it was we would keep 
under 1.5 degrees? I, I would say it's a low probability given our current emission trajectories and the pace of change. Um, but low is not zero and, and it really depends on us as to whether we can actually get our act together to reduce emissions to keep temperatures down. But at the moment, we're actually more more like heading to 3.2 degrees with current actions in terms of climate change. So we're, we're way off track to keep to 1.5. That was Mark Howden speaking to me on RM Breakfast. And Fran, as well as the environmental costs, there are also massive economic implications from rising temperatures, aren't there? Oh, there certainly are. And the report goes through those. It says the economic benefits of limiting warming to two degrees Celsius exceeds the costs of reducing emissions. So that's without even taking into account the avoided damage of climate change. So it also went on to say, and this was quite pointed, you know, there is, there should be no more coal, gas and oil as a fuel because that's, we just can't afford that. To bring that back to our domestic politics, which side of politics did this help the most? The Greens, who say the government's emission safeguard mechanism is too weak and they are demanding the government sign on to no new coal or gas? Or Labor, the government, which says without this mechanism, we just don't have a hope in hell of meeting our interim target of 43% emissions cut by 2030, let alone our ultimate target of net zero by 2050. So you said ding dong, <laughs> fights going on. It certainly is. Everyone's positioning here and they're positioning in the most bold terms, aren't they? The government saying if the Greens don't take this deal that we will, you know, emissions will rise and we'll be uh, in a much worse situation. They're actually using the IPCC report to say this is how urgent it is. Pass our legislation. July 1 is the magic date where it has to start and you need to get on with it. At the same time, the Greens saying the IPCC report is the evidence you need that you need to ban new coal and gas. Now, are they on track for a deal? I suspect they will actually come to a deal. I think they've got too much at stake if they don't do a deal. But if you look at some of the manoeuvring here, we've got the Australian Conservation Foundation who urged the Greens to push for a stronger position, to be clear, but really trying to get it across the line. Bob Brown, who is a former Greens leader, he's not happy with that, is he, Fran? He's sort of saying he's quit the ACF, yeah. he's pushing the <laughs> Greens to be hardliners on this. And his intervention is actually quite key as almost the grandfather figure of, of the Greens. He's putting maximum pressure, isn't he, on uh, on Adam Bant to, to be pretty hardline in his negotiations. Oh, he is. And he went very hard against the ACF and some other green groups um, who basically urged the Greens to get, you know, something which is better than nothing, they say. And when you've got major environment groups taking this totally unsatisfactory, uh, weak approach, which says flick through anything you can, but don't take real action against the real problem. He holds a lot of weight. Both sides are still talking, which is a good sign and a suggestion that they both think they can get something. But it's really hard to see how this is being uh, going to be resolved r right now. I can't quite see where they're going to land on this. No, and there's a few other Barneys going on, another one on the housing uh, fund and the Greens and Crossbench wanting that to be beefed up and more support for social housing. So the government has is in a few pickles to try and get some key pieces of legislation through and they haven't got a whole lot of time to do it. 
but they need to get it done before the budget and I suspect they will be genuinely negotiating because they are very aware of the days being numbered. Adam Bant saying, you know, let's let's extend Parliament if we need to. Parliament has to sit a bit longer to uh, ensure uh, this gets through, then so be it. I don't think there's a great enthusiasm to do that. I think the government wants to get its bills through. Fran, should we bring in our guest and talk about what is a huge story? Let's do it. Claire Armstrong, National Political Editor at News Corp Australia. Welcome to the party room. Hey, thanks for having me. Hi, Claire. Thanks for making the dash up. I know there was a lot of people on that podium. There was a lot of speeches to be given and a lot of questions to be asked. So we really appreciate you coming on. Can I just ask you first about the mood in the room? Clearly, the Prime Minister was emotional. Just just describe the mood, can you? Yeah, well, people would have seen lots of press conferences held in that room known as the Blue Room. I think uh, at a pinch, it probably fits about 30 or 40 journalists at a couple of politicians. There were at least 100 people in that room for that announcement. As many people standing sort of behind the journalists as were on stage, people that have been involved in this voice process for so many years. So it was an incredibly emotional uh, experience with so many people in such a small space. The kind of emotion from the, the Prime Minister as he started talking about the voice really spread through the room and there was, you know, multiple times everyone's probably seen on television with tears and, and tissues. It was uh, one of those moments, I think, as a journalist sometimes where uh, in the very moment you realise this is a very historical, uh, I think, guest thing to be witnessing. It's not something that you think about later on. It was very real as it was happening. Look, this is, yeah, you're right, very momentous. Watershed moment. And we've been waiting too for this. He stood there with Indigenous leadership. I want to go to some of the detail. We've just had a bit of a discussion about it. He's landed at a position where they've supported the words of this advice going to executive government. There are There is an additional section, though, which talks about the composition and uh, the functions of the voice being in the control of the parliament. What's your read on the changes they've made, Claire? Sort of speaking after the PM there, the Attorney General Mark Dreyfus uh, got up to the podium and he said that it's his belief that the wording they've landed on for this constitutional amendment removes without any doubt that the parliament doesn't have ultimate power over the form, function and authority of the voice. So the government, with the legal advice it has acted on, certainly is of the opinion that this wording very clearly states that the parliament will have the ultimate power over the voice and there won't be, as some conservative commentators and and legal minds have speculated, a situation where legal challenges can arise that basically trump the authority of the parliament. And Claire, how do you see those conservative constitutional voices responding? I mean, not to lump Peter Dutton necessarily into that category, but the Prime Minister did tell us that before he came to the Blue Room, he rang Peter Dutton and David Littleproud, the Liberal leader and the National Party leader. Any, any sign, any word of their reaction to this or response to this? No, well, I suppose we already know that the Nationals have decided that they are opposed to this before we were even having these more nuanced debates about its specific form and function. Um, so I wouldn't imagine that that position has changed. Uh, the, the Liberal Party obviously is 
a more complex uh, situation. There's been no reaction yet. We're obviously expecting that to come uh, relatively soon. Potentially within the next few days, we may even get a Liberal Party position on the voice proposal now that we have this final wording. But given that the sort of legal issues around who the voice will be able to recommend and regarding what were not strictly the primary sort of concerns that Peter Dutton had been raising, his focus had been much more in the formation and ongoing work of the voice. It's unclear whether, you know, this settled matter of the wording Mm. will be necessarily what he's looking at. I actually think he'll be looking at the nine design principles that were released alongside this wording that are supposed to put some guardrails around what the voice will look like, how it'll operate, who will be on it. Um, I would imagine, I don't think that, that he is going to consider that to be what he believes is enough detail needed for for this proposal. No, I suspect he won't. But I also think that the referendum uh, group and and the Prime Minister himself, sure, they want the opposition on board, Claire, but I suspect they figure after everything they've said, it's looking increasingly unlikely and it wasn't going to happen anyway, right? That's certainly been um, a strong belief in pretty senior levels of the government for a really long time. That, uh, And we've seen some anger even from members of the Indigenous community around any perception of trying to bend over backwards for coalition support that just may not ever be coming. So I think in the main, if you talk to a lot of MPs in the Liberal Party, overwhelmingly uh, there are a lot who don't support this proposal. Uh, so, and, and given that Dutton has indicated that it's not necessarily going to be tenable for some kind of conscience vote position within the party, you have to imagine they're more than likely going to coalesce around a no because a yes just seems pretty unreachable for that party room. Yeah, it seems to me the, you know, the, the government and supporters of The Voice are going to try and sort of get above this if they can, as quickly as they can, and, and, and go to the heart with Australians. As I mentioned there, you know, the Prime Minister's made a direct call to Australians and said, don't miss it. Don't miss the opportunity. Linda Burney, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, says, if not now, when? And many of the of the people on that podium pointed out that what is happening now isn't working. In other words, you know, we're spending billions now and it's not working. We need to try this because this is what the First Nations people have asked us to try. It's, it's we, We're going to have to see, I suppose, how bogged down in the mire of of politics this gets. Um, Do you think Peter Dutton wants to make this a big political scrap or does he want to say we won't support it because his party room doesn't support it or not not enough of them um, and then sort of keep his hands free of this? I don't think that Peter Dutton will be making to looking to make this a big centrepiece of his political kind of activity over the next six months, in part because a lot of the argument around the voice within the coalition party room is that there are other issues like cost of living that should be focused on. So if they take this position opposing it and then spend every waking minute talking about it, that kind of contradicts their own sort of argument, Uh, of course, accepting that it's entirely possible to deal with multiple issues at once. The real danger as well for Peter Dutton is if he does take that position against and and the voice passes, that puts his sort of leadership in a really difficult position and I think could spark a bit of an identity crisis for Mm. that Liberal Party room who are going to be looking for votes from 
the very people that have taken potentially the opposite position to them on a very important national issue. The, the flip side being it also is far more higher stakes for the Prime Minister to have put so much effort and focus into this for that referendum to then fail. Mm. And in that scenario, Peter Dutton, you know, effectively kind of gets away with having theoretically, he'll argue, you know, read the mood of the nation retrospectively mm. so that the stakes are not as high for him on this issue. Yeah, I know. Many of Labor's front bench, I think, are very worried about this referendum not getting up and what that would mean politically. There's a lot going on there. You're in the thick of it. Five more sitting days. The government needs negotiated outcomes on a number of things. This is one they've ticked off. But another big one is the safeguard mechanism. It's about the signature emissions reduction policy for the government. It seems still like the government and the Greens are a long way apart, though Adam Bant keeps saying he's not putting forward ultimatums, he's negotiating, and and they say the negotiations are ongoing. But, Claire, the failure of the CPRS still looms large for the Greens. You'd think they wouldn't want to feel a backlash of standing in the way of emissions reduction policy again, and certainly the, the Green movement is urging them. The ACF, the Conservation Foundation, and others are urging the Greens to press for as much change as they can, but ultimately let this through rather than end up with nothing. And then we've seen the spectacular intervention of former Greens leader Bob Brown coming in, quitting his lifelong membership of the ACF and calling them weak and urging Adam Bant to stay strong. He said, this is your best hand you've got right now. Push it till the line. What do you think this does to the um, climate of these negotiations? I have felt for a while now that the public, uh, I guess, co- comments that have been made by Adam Band, by Chris Bowen and others involved in this really are uh, just the surface of what, you know, don't really give any indication of what's happening behind the scenes. The fact that for so long Adam Band has come out at, with this offer, as he calls it, of no new coal and gas, and we've known for a long time now that that is not something that Labor are going to consider, yet we're having these lengthy weeks and weeks of meetings and discussions and negotiations. So clearly they have other things to talk about. There's slowly been some indication that there's unhappiness around unlimited ability to have carbon offsets, that there should be more focus on on on-site abatement to try and prevent companies from just buying very cheap offsets and not actually progressing toward reducing their emissions in a meaningful way. Uh, As those sorts of issues have slowly come to the surface, it's pretty clear that I think they are working on some substantive uh, amendments Mm. that will allow this to be passed. Um, Yes, the Greens are mindful of the history they have and this argument of not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. And as much as, you know, an elder statesman essentially in the party that Bob Brown is, has, you know, made this very clear stance on it. He's not in the current no. parliament. He's not negotiating on housing bills, on reconstruction funds, on on a whole manner of other issues that the Greens have also, um, you know, involved in with the government at the moment, not to suggest that they're cross-negotiating. But there's a much bigger play, I think, for the party here as they become far more relevant increasingly as they have more members in the parliament. Claire, thanks for letting us pick your brain and stealing you from the blue room to tell us all. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Claire. And thanks, everybody, for tuning into this podcast. We'll be back next week. See you, PK. See you, Fran.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.